If you remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon text this morning is Ecclesiastes 7:15 to 29. This is what scripture says. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it in our language to be able to study today. We are mindful of all those literally millions of people who today cannot do what we're going to do. They cannot study your word. So we continue to pray that you would send out laborers who would immerse with different people groups and translate your scriptures into their languages that each may have and hold and know you rightly, worship you rightly. Father, please let us never take for granted what we have, these precious promises that are from you. Now we need your spirit to light this text up. This can be a very difficult text. It seems as if Solomon is jumping from one thing to another. And yet, Father, we can understand some things pretty clearly, that we live in a world that's messed up, a world in which we're part of the problem because we all have sinned. A world in which we unfortunately try to make sense of things sometimes away from you or without your counsel. And I pray that you would forgive us. Perhaps some here in this room are trying to make some sense of things in their life. And maybe they've tried to do it according to their own understanding. And I pray that you would forgive us for that. And that you would grant the wisdom we need for the things that we can understand clearly to receive those that you are a father who does good and that whatever you allow in our journey is for our best. And then, Father, for the things that we just cannot understand, help us to trust that you know why they are. And then may we all rejoice that this is not the end of all things. There will come a time that you renew a new heaven and a new earth 
So, Father, I pray that you would help us to have a certain hope that you provide in the gospel of Christ until then. And I thank you for the help that you provide in your Holy Spirit. We pray now for your spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear this text. And then the grace to be able to live what we see here when we walk out. As always, we pray not to be informed, but to be transformed. That you would further conform us to the image of Jesus. And that you would use us in the city here where you've placed us. Incline our hearts now to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, if this is your first Sunday with us, we have been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we have made it all the way to chapter 7, and last week, uh, Pastor Kevin, our youth minister who's with our students, covered verses 7, uh, 1 through 14, and I asked him uh, after the message, I was like, hey man, did you go past verse 14? He said, no. <laughs> and, and so we're going to cover 15 through 29. And the short uh, thing that we have seen in the book of Ecclesiastes is without Jesus, everything is meaningless. Without Jesus, everything is meaningless. And so he sought to find some lasting gain or lasting satisfaction in many different areas in the early chapters. For instance, he sought it in pleasure. Perhaps in pleasure there would, there would be lasting gain. Or in wisdom that there would be lasting gain and satisfaction. Or he sought it in work. That there would be something of, of fullness there. And yet in all of these, which we would say are good things, pleasure and work and wisdom, there was no lasting gain to be found. And so again, the, the, the short summary of it, he uses this word over and over, vanity, vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. And that without Christ, all of these things are meaningless. And he uses a phrase, under the sun. Under the sun, meaning the S-U-N, meaning the sun like that in this world, if this is all we have, then all this is meaningless. It's futile. Where, what he begins to do, though, in chapter 7 and moving to the close in chapter 12, is he moves from experimentation to exhortation. So he's done his research, and now he's ready to make some conclusions. He's ready to give you some thoughts across the board. And so we've, we've got to see some of the experimenting and, and all the different avenues that he tried. Now he's got some things that he wants to impart to you, wisdom, funny enough, that uh, he's gleaned from those opportunities. And as we pick up our text today, one of the things that we can all agree on is that there are some things in this world that do not make sense, yet we try to make the best sense of them we can. Have you ever had that in your life? Something that maybe seems not to make sense of why this instead of this, or, or why not that, and we try to make sense of it. I read this week about a family in California whose six-year-old was, their six-year-old daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and it was difficult enough to walk through that experience with her, uh, but two weeks later, they found out that their four-year-old son had the same exact brain tumor. Maybe some of you have read this and, and seen this in the, in the news. The dad just said this. We, we broke down in tears. How could two kids in 14 days have the same exact tumor? How does that happen? And you have a mom and a dad that are trying to make sense of this. You actually have a medical community that's trying to make sense of it. The doctor, who's the medical director of pediatric neurosurgery, who did both operations at the, at the hospital where he serves, he said, I assumed it was someone else. But then when the oncologist said it was the sibling, he said, I thought to myself, oh my goodness. This is the guy who deals with this every day and sees this. You have 
the, a professor at Stanford University who studies pediatric brain tumors, and she says none of us have probably seen this. And so doctors are currently trying to see if there's any genetic mutations or hereditary syndromes that would make this more likely situation. The dad just offers one thought. The dad says maybe the reason we're put on this earth is so that we can find a gene that causes medulloblastoma. And so he says maybe. Maybe that's why both of my kids have the same brain tumor at the base of their stem of their head here. Maybe that's, that's why. He's trying to make sense of it, isn't he? because no one else can seem to make sense of that. I read this week in another article about a mother in Texas who sold her seven-year-old son for $2,500 this week uh, because she was settling a drug debt. What's really interesting is that when the authorities showed up at the home where, uh, of the person who purchased the child, she's like, I purchased this child, as if that was okay, right? just sickness all around in this. As the investigators dug deeper, there is a two-year-old and a three-year-old, both females, that were also in the process of being sold uh, by this mom. And I look at that and I think about godly families that have been waiting either biologically or adoptive to have little ones, what we celebrated here this morning, little ones entrusted to their care. And yet here, there were three children that are entrusted to this woman and she's selling them to settle off drug debts. And we try to make sense of that. My dad's mother, we called her Granny, uh, in one year of her life, she buried my grandfather, her husband, she buried her dad, and she buried a brother, all, all in the same calendar year. And sometimes we try to make sense of, of these things. There are people who do evil and don't just get away with it, but seem to advance every day and in every category. We'll see that in our text. We, We've seen surgeries where the wrong limb was amputated and the other limb needed to be the one that was amputated and make sense of it. I knew of a pastor in Louisiana whose 18-year-old daughter and, and his wife were going to visit a college, a college visit for her. And on the way back home, they were both killed in, in a car accident. Here she was. She, she, she had, uh, was planning on her, her senior year and finishing it up. She was finishing it up and and didn't get the chance to finish it up and didn't get the chance to go to that college that they visited. And we could share so many more examples, uh, so many I read even this morning of, of tragedies. Uh, I felt myself yesterday, we, we happened to be eating at a restaurant and ESPN had the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest on, on the channel, which was really gross actually while we were trying to eat. But I found myself wondering, what about a mother whose child has just starved to death somewhere in our world, seeing Nathan's eating, Nathan's hot dog eating contest on ESPN? I wonder what that mother thinks and tries to make sense that here in this country, we have enough hot dogs just to eat and spit out or do what we want while she just wants food for the next meal for her little one and it's not coming. I don't know what you may be trying to make sense of, but we certainly try to do that. And I wonder in each of these situations, what counsel you would provide for those who are walking through, what, what wisdom you would offer them, what words you would say to them. Certainly we know that there are some promises of God and that later at appropriate times, we would want to share those because we have them. 
I always say that uh, sometimes the best thing we can do is what Job's counselors did in the first seven days and they just sat and wept with him. That was the best thing they did. When they began to try to make sense of it, according to what they knew, they made a mess of it is what they did. And, and God would ultimately show up and grant revelation to them. But we live in a fallen world and we lack the wisdom and ability to fully make sense of all the things we observe and even that we experience. And the confusion is compounded when we try to find answers in other places besides God. That's what the last verse in this text says. In verse 29, it says, See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. Meaning they've, they've sought out how to figure everything without God. They've, they're looking for answers in other places. And so they're trying to find ultimate meaning in everything and everyone except the one who has ultimate authority and wisdom. And you cannot find ultimate meaning if you're not going to the one who is the essence and embodiment of everything that is ultimate. And sometimes even we as believers can speak beyond what we actually know and misrepresent God with the meanings we provide. Well, here's what I think God thinks about this, or here's what I would say. So that's what Paul is, not Paul, that's what Solomon, see, things don't make sense. Like when a pastor mentions Paul and he's teaching about Solomon, right? Uh, this is what Solomon is dealing with as he wraps up the seventh chapter here in Ecclesiastes. And in your notes, uh, for those of you who have the worship guide in the notes, I put a passage in a sentence for you, and it's just simply this. Here's a summary statement for our passage today. In a world that's full of sin and sinners, and that does not always make sense, true wisdom is found in fearing and obeying God with what we understand and trusting Him with what we do not. So we live in a world that's full of sin and sinners and it doesn't often make sense when we look at these things but there are some things that we can understand from God and we want to trust him with those and with the things that we don't understand we still want to trust him with those as well that he's not asleep that he's not made a mistake that he's in control and that he's good which he's holy that everything he does is right and good and best and we want to trust this a couple truths then that we want to pull out of this text. Number one is what God created, we corrupted. What God created, we corrupted. We want to start where Solomon ends. And so again, verse 29, see this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Have you ever taken something that belonged to someone else and then uh, broken it beyond your ability to repair and replace it? Sometimes this is a spiritual gift of mine to be able to do this with things people let me borrow. Uh, I remember once being uh, at a youth party at our Sunday school teacher's house. And uh, for some reason, you know, because junior high students, we sometimes lack the wisdom we need. Uh, I decided it'd be good to start playing tag with my cousin in the house. And so he, I'm running from him and I open the door and, and go to run through the, the entryway, but they have a screen door. And I didn't open it, not with the handle at least, I opened it with my body. I crashed all through that screen door. And, uh, and then I can remember the man, the owner of the house. He was grumpy anyway. It was his spiritual gift. And hey, you don't use it, you lose it. But I remember him coming and he was not happy. And he was like, thanks a lot. That's what he said. I still remember this to this day. Thanks a lot. He stormed off. A screen door, however, is not so precious or pricey enough to really convey the picture needed here. So, Imagine a one-of-a-kind, irreplaceable possession that is entrusted to your care, but because of your disregard of the owner's guidelines, you uh, have simply, you, you don't take care of it, it shatters into hundreds of pieces, to which you just return to the owner in a pile of brokenness. 
this is, this is yours. <laughs> Sorry, right? Uh, of course, we don't have to imagine too much. We know that that's very simply what Adam and Eve did. They were entrusted with the good words of their good king, and they rebelled against the good words of their good king. And their decision impacted not just them, but us, these babies that we dedicated today, are impacted by the decision that Adam and Eve made. And so what God created, he created good. And a matter of fact, with Adam and Eve, he created very good. But what he created, we have corrupted. And as fallen humans, we are creative and energetic in the area of evil and rebellion. Matter of fact, Paul will say in the New Testament, see, there he is. I knew I'd bring him back. Paul will say that we invent ways of being evil. We invent ways of being disobedient. And so what Solomon says here is God created things good. God created man good. But we've gone away from that. We corrupted that. And now we're trying to understand everything except for through the lens of God. We're trying to have explanations. So we in our accumulated years of wisdom will say stuff like, well, here's why I think this happened. Or here's what I think this means. And we look to ourselves for explanation and understanding. But looking to ourselves and others to make sense of what we see in this world is not helpful because of truth number two in your outline. We're all part of the problem. We're all part of the problem. Well, I, I got this. <laughs> You're part of the problem. We don't need your, you got this, right? Here's what his conviction is. Look in verse 20. He says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's his conviction. There, there's no one out there who is righteous all the time and who doesn't sin and who perfectly is walking in the good words of our good king. They're, they're not out there. Matter of fact, he gives sort of an extreme picture of it. He, look back in verse 28. He says, my soul has sought repeatedly this wisdom, but I've not found he says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I've not found. Now, I do want to say that Solomon was not just a chauvinist here. Let me just say a word. What he means is just the scarcity of a righteous person. And, of course, Solomon, with his wives and concubines combined, would have known a thousand women. But those women also would lead him astray to worship idols. But Solomon is also the one who would frame wisdom as a woman and frame that very well. And so his point there is not to just promote men. And I don't know why men would be boastful if only one out of the thousand were good, but that's what men are dumb. And be like, well, see, there was one of us, but none of y'all, right? This isn't a text, fellas, to go home and build your marriage with. So uh, what he means here is no one is righteous. Here's the scarcity of it that's out here. And then he gives an example of evidence. So he says, no one's righteous. He says, let, let me give you an illustration. Verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So he says, look, part of the reason that we can't make sense, part of the reason this world is messed up is that we all have sin. And one example of, of that is we don't even have wisdom enough to let what we overhear someone saying about us go. Right? They weren't even saying it to us. He says, you, you happen to hear. It's like you're eavesdropping on your servant. You know, all of you are servants. But let's just say you, you hear what a friend is saying about you to another friend. Or, or you know, one time in, in Tara's case, uh, a woman meant to text something about Tara to another woman, but she texted it to Tara. So it was real easy to eavesdrop on that one. You just had to read it, you know. And then she wrote back and be like, oops, you know, my bad. And so he says, we don't even have the wisdom to let something like that go or the wisdom to treat them with grace as if we're not guilty of the same things. 
He says, you want evidence? He says, here's evidence. We listen and we take to heart what we hear. And then we, we act as if we're not guilty of doing the, the same things. We become self-righteous. And I would say that what Solomon is saying here is we can't make sense of the world because we're too busy making sin. That's us, that we're producing this. And what others do to us, we're often guilty of doing the same thing. And it is distressing. It is, no one loves to hear other people say negative things about them or to hear that others have said every, negative things about them. But in particular, it, it is when you hear things, which just word to the wise, as I said in my office, even with the door closed, I hear all your conversations in the lobby. Just passing that along for FYI for you. Um, but it's fun at times what you hear. I love in particular hearing youth conversations on Wednesday nights. I can say it secretly because they're all on the trip right now, you know. And uh, I don't want them to know that I get to hear all their conversations. about. Uh-huh. Okay. Text that, Daddy. And so then, uh, anyways, that we, we hear. The, the reality is... We're worse than what anyone would say about us anyway, aren't we? You know? I read one man who said, I never worry about people who say evil things about me because I know a lot more stuff than they do, and it's worse than they're saying. <laughs> all right? Or another man, he just said, he didn't insult me at all. In fact, he was talking about another man, the man he thought I was. Right? And so... I wish only by the grace of God do we let those things roll off or that we don't want to retaliate. One thing that is true, we would not want to be judged by our worst moments and therefore we should not judge others by theirs. Sometimes we're guilty of that. We, we wouldn't want to be judged by our worst moments. We should never hold people to higher standards than we hold ourselves and, and shouldn't feel this self-righteous outrage when we're guilty of the same wounding actions. We also shouldn't say things about people we would not say their face, and we should not listen to others who are doing so. And uh, I love Philip Ryken. He just passes on a couple words. While we're here, this, this is just one example, gossiping about others. There, it could be any other sin he points out. But while he's on the topic of gossip, uh, there are just some questions that I would pass along to you. Would I say this if that person could hear me say it? And if the answer is no, then you probably shouldn't say it to whomever you're saying, unless you're saying it to the Lord in prayer, right? Number two, is this the way you would say it to them if you were saying it, right? Say it to the Lord in prayer. And then three, am I saying this for the glory of God and for the love of my brother or sister, or am I only saying it to vent my own frustration? I'm frustrated by this. So while we're on that, just passing on a little wisdom, praying that you would have the grace to receive that, but would I say it if they could hear me? Is this how I would say it to them? And am I saying it because it's for the glory of God and their good? Just what we prayed for our babies, right? We don't want to be those who just do religious stuff. We don't want to be those who just pray things and, and then not live at all. So in this example. So he says, you know what? What, cre we cre what God created, we have corrupted. And the problem is all of us are guilty of this. We are all full of sin. And so we can't make sense of all these things. And so it gets us to the third truth in our text. As a consequence of our corruption, we live in a world that doesn't always make sense to us. In verses 15 through 17, here's what he says. In my vain life, I've seen everything. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is the 11th time he uses this phrase. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen. So again, he's been basing all of this on his observations. And now he's moving to exhortation. But he Basically, he's saying here, in my fleeting life, in these vain days, in this short time, I've seen everything. And then this is the one that really bothers him. 
There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And as I put in your notes, sometimes the righteous die because of their obedience, and sometimes the wretched are prolonged in their disobedience. And Solomon's upset about this. He says, this doesn't seem to make sense. Um, he, he seems pretty miffed about it, that there's no correlation between one's goodness and one's lifespan. And the reason that he would be upset is because the Old Testament fault there, if you do good, God will do good to you. And one of the good things that God does is extend your life, give you full life. But if you do bad, God's going to punish you. And so a lot of that based on even covenant theology. There were blessings for keeping the covenant and there were burdens for breaking the covenant. And so their mind is do good, receive good, do bad, receive bad. And he looks and he says, this guy died by being righteous, because of the righteousness, this guy's pursuing sin and he's getting to keep on doing that and it's only escalating and Solomon is burdened by that. He can't make sense of it. Uh, I've shared with you before in 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip who was 10 and Timothy were six, Graham and his family had been ministered in, in India for over 30 years and his two young sons, they were together with him, and they were robbed by a group of radical Hindus, forced into their car, and then the, the, the crowd set the car on fire, and Graham and his boys were burned alive in that, in that car. Their, their bodies, literally, when they retrieved them, they're together in a huddle that he's holding over his boys. Graham was in India for the gospel, and the way he was rewarded was they took his life for that. And sometimes we would look at this and, and we would say, well, Solomon in particular says, that doesn't make sense. And so Solomon comes to a conclusion then. He says in verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? And so there seems to be like Solomon's like, eh, just sort of be like, meh, in your walk, right? Don't be too righteous because that'll destroy you. And then don't be too bad because that could get you killed too. Just kind of be apathetic and middle of the road, right? And so in so many churches, this would be where people be like, hey man, brother, I've been that my whole life. I knew that was the best path. My daddy modeled that for me. My mama, my, hey man, and here it is in scripture, right? I got to tell you, that's, that's not what Solomon is saying. And we have so many other texts pushing us. You have to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind. Paul straining forward toward the upper call of God that's in Christ Jesus. So there are plenty of others. What Solomon means here is what I put in your notes. Living in a messed up world does not mean that fully pursuing righteousness obligates God to preserve our lives. It also doesn't mean fully pursuing rebellion frees us from fear of God's punishment. So Solomon says, you know, if you do good, you receive good. If you do bad, you receive bad. But what he's understanding here, what he's seeing is, even if you pursue full righteousness, it doesn't obligate God to, to spare your life. God alone is the one who's going to determine lifespans. And the prolonging of our lives is ultimately up to God's providence and his purposes, whether we're good or bad for those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And what we would say on this side of the cross and on this side of having revelation uh, I don't mean the book I mean Matthew Mark Luke John, the New Testament having pictures here more information 
what I would say to you is that for the believer who dies serving the Lord, death is never punishment, but purposeful. And it is also gain and far better. And so Solomon may look at this and say, well, they didn't get the full promises that God was saying about life and land. But yet Paul will tell us on, on the, this side of the cross, you know, to depart and be with Christ is far better than even life here and land here and having that eternal perspective, especially for those of us who want to see these grandbabies we dedicated. We want to see them get married. We want to see them go to college. What Paul will say is seeing Christ is better than seeing all the things the world could afford you. And so what we know is that, that even if we die in obedience, it's game. There's blessing. For the non-believer, perhaps death is spared for means of repentance and regeneration. You know why? Because God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. It's what he tells us in Ezekiel. So perhaps they are spared even in their evil because God has purposes and there's a day coming for their repentance and their regeneration. The bottom line is we make poor judges of each other. I say that all the time, that we make poor judges of each other because we don't have the full picture. So for instance, the other day Kevin sent our staff a text saying that the Holy Spirit had led him to say that we should avoid Scarlet's Donuts and at that precise moment, that he had a word, word from the Lord. For me, if you don't know, there's a Scarlet Donuts close to where three of us live in particular. Uh, and then he said that the word came because he saw a black SUV pulling out of the, the parking lot in particular. Uh, and then I responded to say, I regret to inform you, Kev, that according to Old Testament prophecy standards, we now have to stone you because you were incorrect. I'd actually been putting two bills in the mail. There's a mail receptacle in that parking lot there. And I've been putting two. Now, 95% that prophecy would have been right any other day, right? It just happened on that day that I was putting the, the mail in the bill. As Fred Luter, one of my favorite pastors from the Ninth Ward, New Orleans, used to say about Hurricane Katrina. If Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on New Orleans, he always said, well, he missed the French Quarter and hit my house, all right? So we make poor judges of each other and trying to make sense of these things because we're part of the problem, which gets us to our next truth from this text. In trying to make sense of the world, wisdom would be helpful, but left to our own resources, we can't obtain it. We can't obtain it. Look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. There is such a benefit when we have wisdom from the Lord, and, and if we could have absolute wisdom, if we were to look ahead, look in chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. And there is illumination that comes with wisdom. There's insight that comes from wisdom. There are benefits to having wisdom, which is why in Proverbs, Solomon is the very guy in Proverbs 4 who says, above everything else, get wisdom. Get wisdom because it will guard you. It will keep you. It will be a benefit. And he lists multiple benefits. But there's a problem for us. Look in verse 23 and 24 of our text. Solomon says, all this I've tested by wisdom. I've said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? So the problem is in this world that's messed up and in which we're part of the problem and have sin and we look at things that don't make sense to us, like how come the righteous guy's getting killed while being righteous and the guy who's in sin is thriving? Why is this going on? He says we need wisdom, but complete wisdom, he lists these things. He says it's far off. He says it's deep, very deep. And then he just says, who can find it out? And later in, in, in 25 through 29, he's going to say, I sought it and I couldn't get it. 
I saw it and I couldn't get. So left to our own resources, we can't, we can't have the answers to some of life's toughest questions, especially about the inequities of life, the inevitability of death. And so he realizes that he has limits and that only God is all wise. And what's really interesting is Solomon is going to be brought to the same point that Job is. Hold your place in Ecclesiastes just for a moment and turn back to Job chapter 28. I mentioned Job earlier. For those of you who don't know, the devil was given permission to attack Job, to take away the things that were most precious to him, all of his children, all of his wealth, all of his health, all in one day. That's a doozy of a day, isn't it? Oh, he was blessed to keep his wife, who her counsel was, why don't you curse God and die? Hmm, what a helpmate. What a helpmate, right? Satan left her on purpose. So, Job, though, in trying to make sense of it, Job comes to a conclusion, and it's what Solomon comes to. In Job chapter 28, verse 12, here's what Job asks. But where shall wisdom be found? And where's the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. That's what Solomon just told you in Ecclesiastes 7. The true, full wisdom that we need, it's not found in all of our university libraries. It's not found in all the experiences of life. The true wisdom we need is not found in the land of the living. He says, the deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and the precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. He's just telling you, it can't be found in the things of the world, and it is more precious than all the precious treasures of this world. So then he asks again in verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. But here's the answer in verse 23. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. And so he says, where is wisdom? And Job comes to the conclusion, it's with God, God alone. And he comes to the end to say, here's what he wants us to know of wisdom right now, that the fear of the Lord, this is, this is where wisdom is. And what causes us to turn away from evil, that's that's wisdom and understanding. And so that gets us to uh, the next to last truth in your outline there. There are some things that we can make sense of now. Going back to Ecclesiastes 7. What, what are those? What are some things that we can make sense of? Number one is this. Full explanations cannot be obtained right now. We, we can't get them. Look in verse 27 and 28 of our text in Ecclesiastes 7. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. The wisest man who ever lived, who sought with all that was in him to make sense of all that is, and he couldn't do it in his own 
resources and even in his heightened ability. And though he may have more wisdom than all of us, we do have more revelation than he had, having the word of God that we have at this point. So we know more of God's word and work in the world. And, and while we do have answers to some of the most important questions, who is God? What way has he made to be reconciled to him? These are life's most important questions. We don't have answers to every question. And listen, God isn't obligated to provide those. I knew of a pastor, a, pastor, a man who pastored the, the congregation that met across the highway from my house in Leesville. One day his wife and his youngest daughter were in a car wreck. The daughter was killed and the wife was paralyzed. She's been paralyzed ever since that wreck. And he came into our death, loss, and grief class, actually, in seminary and shared. And he said, you know, a lot of people talk about the why. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why? Why did this happen? He said, but I want to tell you this. When we get to heaven, it won't matter why. It won't matter why. And so God is not obligated. Did you know in the book of Job, God never gave Job an answer to the why. God just gave Job more of God more revelation of himself. And sometimes that's what he does in our situations. What we can trust right now is this. God is for us. How do we know that? He sent Christ to die for us. You can't be more for someone than to, to give your own son for them. He is with us. He's made promises. Even Jesus himself says, I'm with you to the end of the age. And he's working all things for our good. So even when we can't make sense of this situation, this sickness, this loss, this struggle, we can, we can know and trust God is for us, he is with us, and he works even this wretched situation to our good. And he's not obligated to do that. That's just part of his goodness to us that he's chosen to do this. So full explanations cannot be obtained right now. Truth number two, then, under that is what we can make sense of is foolishness is more bitter than death and can be avoided by obeying God. That there, there is something more bitter than death. Just think about that for a moment, right? He says in verses 25 and 26, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. He means understanding, making sense of. And to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that's madness. So he says, I even wanted to, to check out all the wretched stuff to see if there were any answers there to, to make sure I had a grasp of it. And he says in verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by here. So the, what he says is there's something more bitter than death. And what's more bitter than death is to waste the one life you've been given. To be entrapped in folly and foolishness and sin so that you waste day after day. I've admitted to you often, I don't know how much time I've spent on sin in my life, but it's been a lot and it's all been wasted. It's all been wasted. It's what he's saying here. This is more bitter than death to, to give in. And, and whether he means uh, an adulterous woman or whether he means folly. Both are in play here. Both have that sense. Proverbs 5, he gives a picture. of five, Actually, Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 of this adulterous relationship. And he does say in Proverbs 7, I've seen out my window the young foolish guy who goes toward her house. And she says, hey, my husband's out of town. Which I always advise every teenager. If she uses the phrase, my husband, move along. These are not the droids you're looking for, right? This is not it, right? We move along. And he says, but what happens is he gets trapped. He says, it's like the deer 
that doesn't realize it's too late till the arrow pierces its side. It's like the bird that sees something appealing and doesn't realize that it's a whole net that's coming along. And he said, it's like the ox who goes into the slaughter, not knowing he's not coming out. And he says, this is the thing. And, and I would say in our world where, and I would say a word right now, because it seems every week I keep hearing about adulterous relationships. There's no gain to be found there. There's only pain and wounding to be found there. Let us see the word of the Lord and let's follow. And it is not just my sin, but it is what, church? Our consequences, right? And so whether he means the adulterous woman or not, let us have wisdom to recognize it and to flee. That's the biblical word. Flee from that. Encompassed with all that, he means foolishness. And it's foolish. And so disbelief leads to disobedience, which is always to our detriment. And his point here is there are no lasting answers found in wickedness and folly. You want to make sense of stuff? You're not going to make sense of it when you're making more sin. There are no answers in sin. There's no benefit to wickedness and folly, just burden. There's no lasting meaning to be found in wickedness and folly. There are no answers. There are only anguish. That's what he's saying to you. That's what he's saying. He said, we may not be able to figure everything out, but there are some things that we can see. And he says, nothing is worse. Nothing is more bitter than to waste your life entrapped by sin. I want to say a word to you. If some of you are in habits of sin that you can't shake, we as elders want to pray for you. There are great counseling resources too, right outside Mitchell's office on the front. There, there are great counseling resources that are free, that are available. I want to encourage you to pass by there. But I want to say to all of you, this is a safe place to be very transparent about sin. You know why we get caught in sin? Because we didn't confess to anyone our struggle. This is a safe place to confess struggles. This is like Planet Fitness. It's a judgment-free zone, right? I know that place is judgment-free because when I walk in there, like once every six months, they're like, hey, you know, they're not scolding me because they get my money regardless, but they're not scolding me, right? And so this is a place where we want to help folks be delivered from sin, and we want to come alongside, and we can only do that when there's transparency, when there's accountability, but here's, here's what I want to beg with you. Do not waste another day in the foolishness and bitterness of sin. Don't think there are answers to be found in folly. He's saying they're not. Which gets us to the last truth, which is really, really important. Fear of the Lord is critical for navigating a falling, fallen world. Go back to verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So he says, the one who wants to avoid the foolish woman or foolishness, here's how you avoid it. You please the Lord. Proverbs 16, 4 and 6 says, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from iniquity. Here, he says, here's the wisdom. Fear God and you'll come out from both of, and there he was talking about the, should I be righteous? Should I be unrighteous? In other words, what we want to grasp is, don't be wicked and foolish and blow life. This is your one life. These are your only opportunities. Be holy and wise. Second, Remember that you are a finite sinner who can't control God or even understand what he's up to. So obey God in what you know. Trust him in what you don't. So he says this is the answer. In our fallen world, with what we do know, we want to fear the Lord and walk in his ways. And that's what we can control. 
I cannot control then as a result of obedience, it costs me my life. I cannot control as a result of my obedience, it costs my children their life. But he says there's no answer either in choosing full-on disobedience. There's no blessing there. He says the wisdom that we know is that we fear the Lord and we follow what he says and then we trust him to know what's right and best. So in what we can understand, we trust, and what we can't, we trust. Why? Because he's for us, with us, and working it all for our good. I want to close in Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8, and that's where we'll close today. Solomon doesn't end here because, again, he may have had more wisdom than us. We have more word than he had. We have more revelation than he had. In that very last point on your outline, you should actually underline and circle and thank God because here's what I wrote for you there. What we wrecked, God has redeemed, reconciled, and will renew. You know why you should underline that? Because he didn't have to do that. He could have let all of us be trapped in foolishness and sin and perish and he would be holy and right and good. I hope you never come to the end of that outline and where we began, what God created was good and we, we corrupted and you expect him to do good. We should always be amazed that he's chosen to do good because what we, re what we wrecked, he redeemed at the cost of his son, at great cost. We think about these babies that one day the Lord may use and one day we may send these babies out for the sake of the nations. But no one knows more what it means to be a sending parent than God. And sending your child knowing that your child will be put to death. And knowing that the Romans will never harm your child, nor the religious leaders will never hurt him as much as you will when you will pour your wrath all out on him because of the rebellion of all the others. It's not even his. He perfectly obeyed you every day that he grew and pointed to you but you're going to treat him as if he's the one who's had the affair as if he's the one that's had the gossip as if he's the one that looked and looked for security from other people in other places than you it's the wonder of the gospel right so i don't want us to come to this and say yay he's going to renew it and and it miss us i want us afresh to be reminded thank you god that the gospel is the best news for the worst people. That you are so good to we who are so bad. Because he's under no obligation. In Romans 8, uh, the world that we corrupted, he's going to one day make new. Here's what it says in Romans 8. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know what I said? When you take something that belongs to someone else and you mess it up and then can't repair it or replace it. I mean, just imagine Adam and Eve, right? What they did has consequences for stars we don't even know exist. What they did have consequences for planets and galaxies we don't even know exist. That's messing it up pretty bad, right? Extensive. But he says the creation is waiting in hope. He says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I wanted to share this with you because in this world as we move forward, there are going to still be things that don't make sense to us. And we don't have the wisdom to fully understand why this may occur. There may be some things that occur with these children that we dedicated that we all look around and we just try to comfort each other because we can't make sense of it. And we're going to have to trust the Lord for it. But here's what I want to say to you. that He admits that in this world we're going to have suffering, but he says we have hope. And in the Bible, hope is not like this. Thumbs together. I hope our team wins this fall. It is certain hope. Our team is going to win. That God has certain hope to give us. So even in this world, there's hope because this is not how it's all going to end. For believers, listen, brothers and sisters, for believers, these are the only struggles you will ever know. And one day all of these struggles will be forever gone. For believers, because Christ took our pain, these are the only times of pain we will ever know. And there will come a time when we have no more pain. So he says we look forward with hope even in the midst of the difficulty. But he doesn't just give us hope, he gives us help. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I love God. All that he expects from us, he provides for us. He gives us the resources we need to be faithful. So likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so I love, he says, I I don't want to just even give you hope. I want to give you help. Sometimes in trying to make sense of situations that we're in, we don't even know how to pray. And the good news is, he says, the Spirit gives us help and the Spirit intercedes. The other night at, at one of the camps I was preaching at, Someone prayed for me, but they didn't call me by the right name. They called me by someone else, all right? It's awesome. Hey, as long as they remember Jesus' name, that's all I care about. Amen, bro, right? And so uh, what I laughed at after the prayer, I said, that's what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit says, he meant to say Landon, but he didn't, Father. We're praying for Landon tonight, right? That's what the Spirit does. And so the Spirit helps us that when we don't even know what we should pray, I, I want to encourage you with, with these, these three words right here. Don't let the fact that you don't know how to pray as you should discourage you from praying. When you're in the middle of it and you're trying to make sense of it and you're like, I don't even know what to pray, it's okay to say that to the Lord. I don't even know what to pray, Lord. Don't let it discourage you from praying just because you don't know what to pray. Number two, don't let the fact that prayer isn't easy discourage you from praying. It's not always easy to, to put into words what we want to express. And then number three, don't let the fact that your prayers don't seem to be answered keep you from praying. God is not passive. God is active and he's working. And one of the promises that we know he's working is because of what we just read. He works all things together for our good. That's what the plan is. Verse 28, we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose. And so as we see here, hope and help we can rejoice in that what we wrecked, he will redeem, he will reconcile, and he will make new. And this is good hope for us, who in the middle of trying to make some sense of things, that's the thing that will make most sense. 
He's working. He's not abandoned us. The rest of Romans 8 is just a celebration, and he just comes to some conclusions. Hey, if God didn't spare his son, how will he not also give us all things? And nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul just rejoices, even in the middle of suffering, even in the middle. Let me close then. Mitch will come, and we want to move to a, a time of response through song. And you know what? Maybe you need to pray. You, you may want to sit and not sing today. You may need to pray. Maybe we don't come often to these steps, but I want to invite you. Maybe there's something not making sense in your life. You want to pray. Or even after the service, I'd be happy to pray with any of you over something. Look for me. I'll be wearing this. And we'd be happy to meet with you and to pray over any situation. A couple questions then. Are you currently trying to make sense of something that's happened in your life, but relying mainly on your own limited mind and understanding? Ask God for the grace to trust him both with what you understand and what you don't. Number two, ask the Lord to give you peace to know that though not everything in life makes sense to us, it all makes perfect sense to him, and he's working it according to his wisdom. He knows what's going on. We're just trying to guess at best times. He knows, and he's working for our good. And then, if you're trapped in foolishness, if you've been trying to find some answers in sin, and like Solomon have already found there are no answers there, I want to encourage you to repent today. And if you need accountability, all of our elders are willing to pray with you and to serve at that capacity. We just don't want you to waste this one life. Don't be trapped in foolishness and wickedness and rebellion. There aren't answers there. There's just anguish. There are no blessings. They're just burdens. And if we can come alongside you in fighting for joy and fighting for sanctification, we want to do that. Father, thank you for today and the chance to study a really difficult text in so many ways of what is Solomon saying here. Thank you for grace, Father. Thank you for opening this text to me earlier in the week, even as I was in West Virginia. And Father, I'm sorry that what was good we have corrupted and that we are part of the problem. We don't even have the sense to, when we overhear something, to let it go or to treat them as if we're not guilty of worse things. Father, I pray that Trace Crossing would be a place where, one, we're praying on behalf of each other, not gossiping about each other. I pray that it would be a place where much grace is extended to each other. Father, I'm sorry for the times that we try to make sense according to our own schemes, as Solomon says here. Solomon is the very one who told us to trust you with all our heart and to lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways to acknowledge you and that you direct our paths. And so, Father, I, I pray that uh, maybe some here are trying to walk through some difficult situations. I pray for what we do know, that you are for them, you are with them, you will work even the most difficult things for their good. That, that would be a comfort. Thank you that you provide hope and help for us. For the things that we can't make sense of, help but not to dominate us, but help us. I pray for the grace to trust you more. That even like Job, you may never reveal the why, but you just reveal more of you. And so I pray, Father, that we would 
we would be content with these things. Father, for any that may be trapped in foolishness, rebellion, it's more bitter than death, Solomon says. Help us to be honest with one another. Father, please, please help us to put away anything that pulls us away from you. Please let Trace be a safe place that we can confess sin to each other. Not only that, let Trace be a safe place that we confess our struggles so that we don't have to be caught in sin. I'm sorry, God, when we try to hide those, when we hide them from each other, and yet they're on full display before you. Please help us to stop trying to impress others. Find our security in what you've done for us in Jesus. And then be able to be free with one another. We rejoice today, Father, that any sin we would confess, you have already covered with Jesus and his blood. I pray that this would be a place that together we, we strive together, we contend together for the gospel. We help each other put away sin. We help each other grow in obedience. Father, help us not just go to the same building, whether it's here or, or maybe even this location at McCullough. Help us not just go to the same place. Father, help us to be the church. Help us. Help us. Use your spirit and your word now. However, we need to respond to this text, to repent, to trust, and pray for your grace to empower that obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. You want to pray, you, you can stay praying. You want to stand and sing, we're going to stand and sing. You want to come and kneel, feel free. Feel free to use this time to respond to the word.